vote. Hi everyone and welcome to another edition of Sport and History. I am the host for this week, Connor Heffernan, and I'm very happy to be joined by Serial. Uh, repeat guest, um, well I mean two sort of next to Serial, uh, I think. Alexander Jackson of the National Football Museum and Alex, you've just published a new book on football during the First World War called Football's Great War with Pen and Sword and remarkably for an academic book it's £25 which sort of filled my heart with glee when I hit when I added it to my basket. So welcome back to the podcast and maybe do you want to give a quick blurb of the book before we dig into the process of writing it, what you found, and maybe some of the key insights that you gained from it. Yes, and uh, what I can also add as well is like um, I think that oh, offer may have gone, but last time I looked, it was uh, even less on the uh, on the website. I think it was about seventeen pounds. So I if you need to, uh, so I got rid of it. So, well, I just well, I just my my bank account is uh, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit fatter for it. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that few pence, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so um, uh, yeah, it's on football, uh, football on the English home front during the First World War. And it's um, a topic I got into, um, cool, be going back at about 2013, 14. Uh, at the Football Museum, we researched and put on an exhibition around football uh, on the, in the First World War, both on the front lines and at home. And out of that, I kind of got interested in the, the topic as a whole, um, and, but specifically the home front story, because there was quite a bit sort of in different ways and different books and different sources around sort of the front lines, which comes to mind to probably in terms of the popular imagination through obviously the Christmas truce or the, the disputed role of football within that, uh, the image of like the Surrey's regiment kicking a football ahead, against, ahead of them uh, on the Battle of the Somme, uh, and also the footballers' battalion or in the stories of individual footballers at the front lines. And so obviously that kind of reflects the sort of, uh, for quite a while, that sort of focus on uh, the front lines within the history of the First World War. Um, and obviously the, over time, there's been a more of a movement to exploring that home front story. And within that football and sport, actually, I'd probably say in, in general, is sort of still a relatively unexplored area. Um, so foolishly, I thought I might get into this and I'll start researching it in my spare time. So that took about, six or so seven years <laughs> to get this towards the end i mean it's time well spent like, yeah yeah definitely get, get me busy the um the worst thing someone ever taught me is on microsoft word there's a function that if you click into it it shows you how much time you spent on a document oh good lord to I, the minute ahead of that it's the worst it's the worst thing actually i like to tell it to people right before they submit their dissertation because I, I don't tell them to click on it i just tell them that it exists and then yeah, the balls in their court, whether or not they want to want to find out. So don't the do thing that. Is, the thing is, because we're on Zoom, you can see my, my the way my face reacts. To yeah. A little bit of like trepidation. I'm not entirely sure I should go and do that because I'll probably frighten myself. Yeah, it's not 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 the best, especially when you start to like, think about like the opportunity cost. You're like, I could I could be speaking Mandarin right now. Um, <laughs> but you've published a wonderful book um, instead. And actually, so a very simple question, to, I suppose, kick off the examination of it. Like, what impact did the war have on the role of sport or the role of football within English society? Because obviously there is a parallel with COVID and lockdown. And is it right to be playing sport when we have this bigger external pressure going on? Are those conversations happening in England sort of circa 1914, 1915? It very much so. Uh, and so what you have sort of by the start of the war is sort of, uh, by 1913 you've got the uh, 50th anniversary of the foundation of the uh, football association and so at that time just before the war starts mm -hmm. uh, there's this sense of sort of 
the game has rapidly expanded from an amateur sport pastime to a big commercial one. And then within that coming all the tensions and concerns that still you still sort of see in the game today, like what's the role of money? How like what's the role of professional players in like, like life as role models? Uh, what's the role of spectatorship? Is it a good or a bad thing? Like who's grassroots for football for? Uh, and so when obviously when the war comes along, it's this big disruptor in the same way that the pandemic was. Uh, yes, you definitely you have those big discussions about essentially sort of quite extensive. I can never pronounce it, but basically what is the role of like meaning of like sport in our lives? And obviously for for people at different times, for different people at different times, that meaning completely changes. It doesn't change or it changes in different ways in relation to the progress of the war. Uh, and so that was what was quite fascinating what I really enjoyed with the book was exploring it in depth across those four or five years um, I think what's for me was quite interesting was why I wrote the book to a degree was because traditionally when uh, writers especially of the home front in general have looked at it like sort of the big names there they sort of tended to sort of go sport stops and that's been linked to the idea that professional football shuts down completely in 1915 after their very controversial 14-15 season uh, and I think sort of within that there's sort of, um, sort of a narrative developed that like that's it football completely switches off it might be seen at the front lines um, uh, played by troops behind the lines um, but when you actually get into it uh, what you actually have in England specifically and this is what I've not done a story of British football they still want to be done off British wartime football and um, what you have is quite specific to England whereas they stop the payment of players and that's the one thing that stops but the rest of the sort of structure of football can is allowed to continue football still continues you have to have restrictions on uh, leagues being not interfering with like men doing their work in factories and players have to have work jobs outside of football they can't be paid to play but in essence football continues in uh, although in sort of uh, on a regional scale and that's a very big, big, uh, big sort of uh, philosophical approach, so to speak, is in Scotland and uh, uh, Ireland, uh, limited professionalism continues. So professional football doesn't stop there. The amounts of money that players can um, continue uh, goes up, it's reduced, but continues. So actually, it's, it's a really fascinating thing to see the game actually go from this, uh, go from this big commercial concern uh, to this reduced sort of almost like commercial side of it so clubs can still earn money from spectators directors can still get dividends if there's enough money to pay a dividend uh, but it's very so focusedly uh, so, uh, very focused on professional players not earning money which is a very very interesting big change uh, which lasts for a number of years and there are debates about whether that should continue after the war and in terms of the, I suppose, pressure, because it does seem like the paying of players seems to be the pressure point, not necessarily the playing of games. Mm. Is that internal soul-searching by the FA? Is that external pressure from politicians and writers and military men? Where is the, I suppose, impetus to uh, sort of defang professional football? It's, it's, it's a mixture, I suppose. It's all of those things, really. It comes from that, pre, that sort of pre-war concerns about like, whether the game should be professional. Uh, and that's obviously a legacy of the, the amateur sort of ethos of the game's rulers, uh, especially those sort of uh, connected warm with grassroots football than, say, professional football. Um, and so do you, essentially when the war comes along, you have... Uh, those people who are worried about it within the game, and then you have the external people outside of the game who are not really interested at all, but who uh, see 
there's mm. if you see football professional football as morally offensive which you can both understand to a degree uh, and then also understand some of the hypocrisy that comes with that so one can understand when you get see letters from people in the press writing about you know the fact that they seeing large crowds offends them when their own son has joined up and been killed like a few weeks earlier uh, and then at the same time though some of these newspapers and critics uh, being quite happy with horse racing and upper middle uh, upper class sports continuing and jockeys being paid and may, raising no concerns about these kinds of activities uh, and it is those really, I think, again, sort of we can see that, again, if we want to refer by going back to the pandemic, it was very interesting to see sort of, I think it was Matt Hancock who came out with that very early, um, relatively early on, um, uh, little mini diatribe at one of his press briefings, if I remember correctly, vis-a-vis Premier League players needing to give up a certain amount of their income to charity. Why exactly it was Premier League footballers and not any other form of professional football, uh, sports person? One, one might, yeah. I want to sort of ponder and work on that. But it was very interesting to sort of see politicians use essentially those distraction ta- tactics or um, pa- uh, pandering to certain elements of essentially the right wing press. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, yeah, so when it comes to the, the summer of like 1915 and the FA decides what to do, um, it's what's quite interesting is on the they have um, on the same day they have beating the football league and the FA and at the football league they actually have a vote uh, which is narrowly in favour of continuing with um, limited professionalism uh, and then later in the day the FA's decision comes back which says there's not going to be any professionalism which point the football league is sort of scribbling hastily through I think along the lines saying like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah we had that vote yeah we know no, we're not we're doing so it's um, but what's quite fascinating when that comes through is there are a lot of people saying well actually football just won't work why would um, Mm. a professional player continue playing for nothing like that's bonkers like the game won't be able to continue so there are these arguments uh, to say that the game cannot continue without professionalism Uh, so in some ways it is quite interesting that the players are willing to keep on playing for nothing in that context Um, but sort of it's an odd inverse you know because for so many years it's like i'm the i'm the amateur gentleman i play for the love of the game and then if you strip, it's just funny when they're like, oh, if there's no professionalism, no one will enjoy, no one will play for the love of the game. And you're like, well, I mean, you've just spent the last 40 years telling me that there's a band of men who play for it. Indeed. Anyway. And, and, yeah. then, and then when they do do that, those, those same mocked professionals, uh, as you still get in these discussions of today's, uh, then are very, are able to continue, do continue to play for several years without getting any pay. Well, some continue without getting some pay, we yeah. should say. Uh, there's, a, yeah, no, there's a big asterisk we'll, mark on that. We'll, we'll, we'll fall back to that asterisk because yeah. if you said some of them had jobs and played, the sort of alarm yeah. bells are ringing. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, but, but, and that's what's fascinating is you do get that. Um, there is that within some of the professional sports writers at the time. They recognise that actually players, uh, the much maligned player actually is um, does have a, a sense of sportsmanship, is willing to like play because he enjoys the game, also wants to continue helping his club. Obviously, there's also then the self-interest argument to that of some of these players are hoping the war will be over soon. So you don't want to offend your potential employer after that might be wanting to give you money again on the contract in a year or two. Um, I think that's, again, the other thing that sort of was quite fascinating, sort of finishing up writing the book um, during a pandemic uh, about a sort of a global crisis as your topic matter is... um, you get a real, I think we've all had a real sense of understanding the sort of um, sort of that real sense of not knowing what the next week or two months or will bring and big predictions of might go this way or that way. And so one of the things I did with the book was a very laborious and time consuming approach. I did a lot of like 
because a lot of it was a mixture. I could still get a lot through digitized sources and that was absolutely brilliant. Uh, I also had to do quite a bit the old fashioned way, relatively speaking, of getting the bound volumes up from uh, from Collendale, I'll show my age there, at St Pancras in the newsroom, and then taking the photographs of the pages week by week and then typing up the notes. And that gave you a real sense of, I think, sort of trying to engage with like, the world that people were trying to imagine would come two months from now, a week from now, next year. Because each summer, essentially, they had to sit down and work out basically how's, how's the war gone? Does the war look like it's ending like this year? And so, and what does that mean for the season? Because we're trying to plan out a season, but just the logistics of that are quite fascinating. So, I think in 1915, the war's expanded, it's quite big, but they're still relatively optimistic. Um, at the start of 19, summer of 1916, everyone again is quite optimistic because they know the big offensive is coming and hopefully it will be all right. And then, mm-hmm. Hopefully by after that, uh, when it comes to the summer of 1917, there's a much more sort of sense of pessimism amongst the, the organisers in terms of like, yeah, we just continue doing what we did before. Um, let's not talk, think too much of like a victory that's going to bring peacetime football coming anytime soon. So it's quite fascinating just watching that interaction of the, the big picture, so to speak, with this, what might seem to other people, some historians possibly even that rather mundane sort of trivial matter of like what will the football season look like for for people but actually it's quite fascinating linking in that that connection between reading people reading news about what's happening on the western front or the eastern front and then trying to work out what the schedule of fixtures might look like and i suppose sort of connected somewhat to that in terms of the football conversations itself how much are they trying to ally themselves to the war effort and, and appear to be good respectable because obviously you have like the wartime, you know, the mm-hmm. um, the PALS groups and the people all enlisting at the start. How, how does that track then across the course of the war? Because obviously at the start, there's a lot of things about the pluck and vigor of the young men that were sending across and he was, you know, sent forward for Albions or whatever the case mm-hmm. may be. Do they continue to try and present themselves in a good light politically or do they just sort of hide in the margins? I, I- to be honest, what I say is that they, as soon as the war starts, for most uh, for most people, essentially like the way we are with the pandemic now, it infuses every aspect of your life. And it is about you trying to work out what is patriotism for you at an individual level and as a group, will that be a club or local level, your city, your region and, and the nation as well. And sort of the really rich, complex way in which you interpret that from the start of the war until the end. Uh, and it can be everything from, obviously, like historians discuss some of the, the sort of the key groupings, whether it's military service, which you've mentioned. So obviously, fundamentally, for men within this, uh, obviously, depending on your age, if you're fit enough uh, and eligible, uh, old enough to go, then obviously throughout the war, that question of like, should you volunteer? Mm. Uh, do you wait until conscription comes along? What reasons do I have for not wanting to serve? Uh, whether they be practical ones like looking after a wife and child, moral ones uh, in terms of like believing whether you should fight at all. And so I think what I tried to get through in the book throughout that is look at that. Got several chapters looking at military service in particular, both at grassroots and professional level, because that was obviously throughout the war. That is the big question. Uh, but then on the other side of that as well is that they're supporting the war effort if you're a civilian. So that can take the form of obviously volunteering time and money, especially mm. around charitable events. So, so football itself is a big broad thing. Is that constantly thinking of like what is the appropriate way to support the war? Is it by continuing professional football? And so the argument, there's arguments for and against that. And then once it becomes, we can't have professional football, but football can continue. It's like for some people, it's like let's just shut down. Like 
that's the best way. And so you see that debate, particularly with like the clubs that decide to continue playing, and those mm. who don't. And so quite interestingly, especially in the Midlands, you have Aston Villa, uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers, West Bromwich Albion, and for one season, Birmingham City. And they all say, organised league football, or regional football is going to distract men from war work. We don't want to distract them from that work by providing a regular distraction every other Saturday. And we're just going to play occasional friendlies. And so that leads to a really big, um, at times, very sort of vicious uh, discussion within the pages of the Birmingham Sports Argus, um, which is in support of football continuing and is very supportive of Birmingham City when they come back. And one might argue, obviously, that there's a financial uh, side to that. If a Birmingham sports paper possibly needs some more, would probably sell more papers if it has yeah, more, more bigger games. Yeah. At the same time, it's uh, I think it's a, it's a genuine thing from the sports editors, uh, the sports staff. They believe that's the right course. Uh, they have the readership. They have soldiers at the front writing in to say they're really disappointed not to be able to get news of the Birmingham clubs when they can hear news of like Sheffield clubs playing or Liverpool clubs playing. Um, and the club is re- the newspaper is very supportive of the grassroots football in the city, uh, especially because by playing, even if they're playing small competitions to raise a bit of money for troops at the front. They are theoretically doing more than, say, Aston Villa or uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers. So there's a wonderful one where the newspaper prints a photograph of like two boy, uh, two boys teams from uh, around um, West Bromwich, I think it is, and sort of say basically these two small, two small uh, boys teams have done more than like the professional club there to like raise money. Uh, it's a very pointed, you know, interesting discussion around it. There's the accusations of the um, uh, of essentially cultural Prussianism. Uh, being applied in this context, the people who would deny um, uh, other people their um, wartime um, relaxation through the activities they choose to do. So, yeah. And in terms, I suppose, the continuation of sport, going back to that asterisk comment. Mm. So, you know, people can play, but obviously they're playing for the, for the love of the game. And if they happen to be drawing a salary, I would imagine elsewhere from someone who happens to be connected to the club that they're playing for, that's completely coincidental. Um, how amateur is the amateurism, if that makes sense? It, I think the the it's it's about as amateur as probably the eighteen seventies, and that's the kind of the explicit concern comparison that's drawn when they're introducing these new regulations around amateur football in nineteen fifteen. Because uh, essentially, some very perceptive writers you oh, don't have to be that perspective, I suppose. We're just we're saying, predicting that essentially you'll just have the same kind of practices existed pre-professionalism, which, uh, as you've alluded to, you have there's different ones there's that, mm. uh, and then, yeah, they, and I, they, I don't can't see anything particularly problematic about this one. Like people connected to your club getting you jobs just to ensure that you have a job. Um, and obviously, I think in the context of wartime work, you probably had to work pretty hard if a director had got your job in a emissions factory or somewhere else, comparative to perhaps some of the soft jobs that existed in the 1870s of like, you know, a little bit of office work here or working here, but you know, obviously don't put yourself out, you know, don't work too hard and that kind of stuff. So I think those kind of, and you do have some clubs quite explicitly sort of saying that, oh, we'll look to try and get jobs for people or if anyone can offer a job to, for a player to so he can remain in the district, that would be good. Um, it was very interesting sort of seeing that sort of interaction in the Everton Minute books, because they actually have the correspondence there. And so there's one player that goes back up to Newcastle, because uh, that's where he's from originally. And he says, 
that he'd like to come and play for Everton. But at the moment, if he goes back into his apprenticeship, it's like full on for three years. And so we won't be able to play football. So unless they can find a job for him, he'll mm. won't be able to play, so to speak. And so within a short period of time, they managed to presumably find him a job. Well, they have found him a job in Liverpool. But then he writes again to say, actually, these wages won't keep me. They aren't enough. So I need to get a better job after go home kind of thing. Because um, he plays throughout regularly throughout the war. The bit you, what would probably have infer, because there's nothing in the minutes to say that, to infer that he probably did get a better job, that kind of, uh, presumably with some help from the directors. And then, and then yeah, the, obviously the other aspect of it is the classic boot money, which obviously was going on at, at Leeds City, are thrown out of the uh, Football League after the war for their under-counter payments. Uh, but again, what's quite interesting is they're not the only club. Uh, what's less well-known is Chesterfield sort of... Um, came unstuck around this issue of uh, investigations having their books checked into when there were um, rumours going around they were paying players up to £2 a week, um, which is about £1 more than we you get in Scotland or roughly around the same, I'm trying to remember. Uh, but in sessions, because Chesterfield are smaller and less well-known, um, that example, which happened in 1917, is less familiar to us today. But there were other rumours circulating around, so I imagine to a degree that uh, other clubs might have been doing it. Uh, and you also have the other bit where um, uh, the reports of players getting uh, making their making claims for flat rate expenses as opposed to precise expenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically, turning up to a training session for five minutes on a Wednesday to collect the extra two shillings you could get as travelling expenses, uh, uh, as opposed to like you know submitting the receipts to say that I've travelled, got two shillings worth of receipts. So small amounts but at the time like back as they were saying newspapers that's a way to pay for like you know your cigarette money for the week or mm. all these little little ways especially in a wartime economy where you just got to make your money go a bit further so it's quite fascinating when you delve delve into that sort of granular level detail of, of yeah of the joy of expense <laughs> and i suppose connected to that and it could be a very a very short answer which could be no did any players sort of risk traveling up to scotland to continue being like an explicit, explicitly professional player, or is that just something that? Doesn't uh, so happen? what you have in that is what. So what you have in that one is, uh, if you're an English player, uh, registered player at an English club, you could, mm. and some obviously a number of Scots went back up to Scotland for various different reasons because a number of players in 1915, if they're not getting paid, if they're not settled in a particular area with like family or job and stuff, obviously just return home, especially if they return into the industries they worked in. So a number of Scots do go back up to um, up to Scotland that they can only play as amateurs because they're registered with an English club. And so what the regulations, uh, as they are formed, at least as I understand it, is that if you're registered with an English club, then you couldn't be, you're just playing as a guest for the Scottish clubs, but you're still registered in England and you shouldn't be receiving money. And this question also applies in Ireland. Um, So you do have some Scots going back up. And so what is interesting is I think one or two Scots, I think there's obviously the Scottish Football League and then there's the clubs outside of the Scottish Football League at that time the uh, again sort of in the same way you've got the Football League and the non-Football League clubs in England so I think some of the one then go some one or two Scot- Scottish players registered English clubs go to play for the non-league Scottish clubs uh, I'm trying to remember which one it is uh, where I have I've mild suspicion that possibly there were under counter payments going on there because they're outside of the SFL rules potentially um, it's all a bit murky got to question why potentially quite a lot of high quality players are at certain clubs at certain times what might be or maybe not be attracting them to move or relocate or travel long distances Uh, and then the second one with that is Ireland Uh, so a number of 
a, a certain, probably a small number of players go to Ireland uh, and play under pseudonyms. Because uh, obviously we're used to they. Obviously we're thinking out. We we where a player can turn up. Obviously through social media and stuff. You know, you'd be very easily recognisable. Reports and stuff like that. Obviously back then, if you turn up and if you're good enough, and no one knows your face particularly, like from in Ireland, from England, then you could go to Belfast. Um, and obviously that has the added attraction after 1916 of being a little bit further away from conscription. Um, uh, so there are there is uh, a mini scandal or a fairly decent size. Uh, within the football community scandal of some English players or, or some players from English clubs going to Ireland and then writing, one of them writes back to Athletic News to basically go, wah, wah, I'm playing in Ireland and no one knows my name and I'm getting paid like a pound a week and I'm very cute about it. So they're like, um, so yeah, I challenge you to come and find out who I am, which eventually leads to some, um, uh, uh, to one uh, Irish uh, Belfast club uh, getting into trouble over dodgy, expenses uh records uh and one or two bands being handed out but it's a very small number of players but they are uh, they are part of that wider uh, sort of wartime picture of like what do you do if you want to avoid conscription what do you want to do if you don't want to serve in the military um because Manchester United have one of their players go across there and he goes across and the reasons are asked about it and it's like oh he's got doctor's papers for he's not feeling too well and he's got a job across there and obviously one newspaper's going like, I'm not sure I've heard of Belfast being like recommended as like a the health cure centre oh, compared to Manchester. Uh, <laughs> so well, it's, really... it's interesting just in the Irish context as well, like the practice of playing under a pseudonym mm. would have been common because there was that internal tension with the GA and football. So it's just interesting. Like if you were to go to a country and play under a different name, Ireland was sort of the place to be at that point because everyone was sort of used to the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, like he's A. Jones for the GA on a Sunday, but he's B. Smith, you know, for the football on the Saturday type of thing. Well, well pseudonyms also come into vogue in England particularly as well because what uh, within the, within those players who do stay, um, what you have is uh, military players, players in the military uh, at different times not getting permission to play at weekends, but bunking off to do so. And civilian players who don't have permission to leave munitions factories also doing similar things. And so at the beginning, there's a bit of a sort of um, bit more of a laissez-faire approach. Uh, civilians can arrange for for like shift uh, to for a mate to cover them for a couple of hours, because obviously they basically need to finish a bit early on a Saturday mm-hmm. to get to the game. Um, and then the military off military officers are quite happy to be, I think, especially NCOs and certain officers who want to have a good military team are quite happy to sort of look after a, a professional player as long as he plays the, the key military matches for him. And it's sort of a common understanding. But then as the war progresses, as the sort of obviously you've got the war game going on longer, calls for great sacrifices on the home front, these kind of slightly sort of flexible approaches don't look good when you're asking people to make more and more sacrifices, give up more time and money. So the re- regulations around these become more strict. Uh, and so that what that also leads then is to um, not so much people not doing this, but as you say, use of pseudonyms. So it's um, the um, AN other on the team sheet becomes always a classic. Yeah. Uh, and so you have a number of sports writers that at some points die complaining, like, you know, that basically like, please don't like play a really, you know, it's rather insult- insulting to me at a professional level to be like, you know, and told that like you know this well-known England international that I can see with my own eyes in front of me is like you're saying he's like B Jones, this new youngster you discovered. It's like a little bit insulting. Please try harder. <laughs> uh, um, or I can also attentively I can look at the I have seen the official 
team list that's been handed into the football league uh, to the football league after the game or like not after the game but I've seen like you know what's going around before the game and what officially has been written down um, and also um, what's quite fascinating as well is the military also start getting a bit hotter on that in terms of trying to um, catch out players in terms of uh, making sure they're not bunking off and getting back on time yeah and uh, like you already mentioned Leeds City which like I, I am a Leeds United fan for my sins and like we have a lot of like what if moments but I think the Leeds City is probably the first what if moment because obviously Herbert Chapman then uh, will bunk off to Huddersfield but in terms of clubs and players whose reputations are tarnished by their behaviour during the Great War is there a lot of that happening or is it just more isolated instance and then the corollary of that like is there any club or player who is really singled out for you know fantastic behaviour on the home front in terms of people have it tarnished or affected I mean obviously the, the big one is obviously it's the Good Friday uh, match fixing uh, between Manchester United and Liverpool uh, in 1915 uh, and obviously that play that I mean that affects some of the play, uh, some of the players in the short term. Then you have the amnesty in terms of um, the punishments that were handed out after the war. So and that's there's an amnesty, general amnesty across the board um, for for most players. And obviously, exception to that is Enoch um, Enoch West, the the striker, who's the one that basically fights it in the courts during the war and refuses to. Um, to accept that he was involved or to admit he was involved, um, depending on your point of view on that. Um, and so his ban, his ban lasts through until I think around the second world war, roughly speaking. Um, he's the most notable one of that. I would probably say I'm trying to think of sort of other people um, in terms of reputations. It's a tricky one. I'll probably just say sort of mainly around, around that. Um, uh, yeah and in terms of like sort of it sort of I'm not sure it's my reputation but it might be sort of it's interesting I suppose it's like sort of turning points in people's careers I suppose is the way I possibly look at it in terms of obviously there are some people there are quite obviously a number of players for all sorts of different ways whether it be death wounds lost time there's obviously that big what if of lots of playing careers Mm -hmm. because what's quite noticeable after the war is a lot of clubs tried to pick up where they were before so the Vic so the victims in career terms, if you haven't been killed or wounded, uh, in terms of disruption, actually, I think are the younger players. Established players have a reputation before the war. And so they may not play too long after the war, but the clubs know them, they recognise them. They will play them at least for possibly a couple of seasons or so. Um, it's the youngsters who were unknown before the war that come back to a club that barely even knows them to a degree. And so the great example of that is um, Sam Wadsworth, who is a... Uh, playing for Blackburn Rovers in their reserve team in 1914, just coming through, youngster, about 17. Uh, Blackburn Rovers were then the, like, the, the champions of England, uh, first mm-hmm. division. So that'd be like a young Manchester United youth team player coming through now. So if you can imagine one of those who's just coming through, then lying about his age to join up, then coming back to Man U and then being like, or Blackburn as it was with Sam's case, and then um, him being told basically, um, we don't have a spot for you, even though you served your country for four years, being on the Western Front. Um, so basically he like another of other players just went um, and that's the bit you can't really quanti- it's hard to quantify yeah, you just yeah. don't know or don't quite have the, the data to say X number of these reserve players just never made it or disappeared because uh, we know about Sam because he did make it he went on to become an England international he won titles at Huddersfield Town under Herbert Chapman as you've just mentioned um, whereas um, alongside um, another couple of other players who served in the, the war and then rejected 
Um, and so those are the quite sort of the, those are the quite moving what ifs because you just get those isolated examples. Um, obviously, you don't know the real sort of sort of tragedy in that sense of that player that did come back and then did get rejected, and then what happened in the rest of their life in probably relative obscurity to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and something because I'm trying to think, and I should probably know the poppy starts being worn in 1921 in England, doesn't as a former commemoration did, did you even from say the research afterwards like is there a sense of like coming to terms of trauma about what happens I'm just wondering how does football Ooh. deal with that sort of pause on activities and the players coming back because you know in modern football we haven't actually there hasn't really been that reflection yet of the stopping and project restart and people being furloughed mm-hmm. and all you know all of these various things but you know in football there is a sort of, like eventually there is that sort of commemorative yeah I, I, I think it's a similar one sort of I mean like if we're talking about now I think it's interesting because that I think that sort of reflection time is still yet to come because we're still sort of relatively speaking just coming out of the pandemic mm-hmm. in various different ways in some of the terms of the longer effects and at some point it'd be interesting to see when there is that greater reflection research into it it, within the first world war you have that mixture you have obviously that trying to like right the war's over trying to concentrate on the the, mo- the moment re- re- uh, restructuring rebuilding um uh, which one to, which obviously went on a certain pace because you have the expansion of the football league you have big expansion of rather sorry boom in this the, the crowds up until obviously the mid-20s with the, the depression and so on the one hand there's people like sort of like going full pelt towards like you know everyday life continue with it football is the continuing distraction from uh, potentially of like of different aspects of life which uh, make life hard and then the other hand you do have that football's engagement with various different aspects of the broader commemoration and remembrance um so i mean i found what's very interesting is that i can only find one little quote of what happened really at a football club on the day of the first um uh, of the first minutes uh, or two minutes silence it was then because uh, that was a, a thing that was observed in the, the workplace primarily. I think they had less of the, well, not less of the, the workplace. So it's just a description of the Arsenal players being at training and then stopping for those two minutes and then continuing. Um, and the club then donating money to charity that day. Um, but what you sort of see, well, the, um, I'll try to, sorry, bear with me one second. So you have that sort of, uh, you have that remembrance side. We also have like fans when they come down to cup finals, going then down to the cenotaph. And obviously, I think um, um, uh, Richard Holt's done. Uh, trying to look, it's Richard Holt. Uh, has done work around that. Um, uh, uh, but then also, what's interesting that I sort of explored a bit in the book was that sort of trying to work out what they were doing that focus on for the living or all those who had been affected were living but affected by the war. So you have the National Footballers War Fund, which was a charity created to provide money for injured footballers or the dependents of those killed. So that's something that's quite relatively unexplored, really. And it was fascinating sort of digging into the, the minute books of the National Football Museum because they have the lists of amounts of money given out to players. You can actually try and understand how that charity worked. Uh, and then the other bits that sort of sort of delved into a tiny bit through newspapers was um, just um, what happened to uh, disabled servicemen in terms of being able to come and watch it games because during the war there's a huge amount of effort uh, put into allowing and giving space to injured and disabled servicemen to come to games to making basically them the the, the guests of honor 
And obviously you have that big flip that once the war's over, they go from being the guests of honour to the uh, to the almost forgotten part of the audience. There is some provision for them, sometimes free tickets. But I think what was most disappointing was finding in 1920 for the first England versus Scotland International held after the war at Hillsborough that um, the Sheffield branch of the Limless Ex-Servicemen's Association applied for, you know, basically allocate seat allocation or space and the FA replied to say due to the great numbers of people uh, expected to turn up it would be in the best interest of the servicemen if they did not attend uh, oh, and I think that is very much what what happened is that they were just essentially discouraged they might have tried to apply on an individual basis and even in the 30s you have that sort of at Sunderland finding the local police uh, and Sunderland football club being not massively um proactive not being willing to grant space near the front near the touchlines for for disabled ex-servicemen to watch the games um but still the, the fans with those disabled servicemen would still turn up they just have to you know make their way in like a normal fan which gives you a great indication of sort of that that range of sort of uh, how uh, or forgetting socials shall we say in that post-war period and as a Slightly boring question that's also motivated by my own uh, research because I dig into sort of what was happening in physical culture during the First World War. Like, how difficult was it to actually find accounts? Because I know the physical culture material, it's very hard to get, you know, stuff's printed on cheap paper or it's not printed at all or we're not going to publish this for the next year in respect to the war effort. And then there's a sort of culture of silence around people who served. Like in terms of the range of, as well as voices that you had going into this. You mentioned minute books, newspapers. Like, what did you use to make this book? Which I could probably frame academically, but I can't. <laughs> what was the stuff? <laughs> what, what was the recipe? Tell us the recipe. Uh, I mean, it was, a, it was quite... So, um, so yeah, so obviously a key bulk of it were um, it was newspapers. I'll probably come back to them in a second. But yeah, obviously tried to use as much as I could from the Football Museum. So that was minute books of both clubs and the FA, uh, but also like football annuals, photographs, uh, sort of visual culture. That's especially important around women's football as well. Um, uh, and then outside of that, uh, newspapers. Newspaper. I'm a big fan of unpacking what you get out of newspapers because actually they're a composite of a whole range of different things. Because especially during wartime, you've got the newspaper can have letters from you know other parts of the globe. So you've got letters from different people mediated through the media in different ways. Uh, through newspapers, it also then give you account, financial accounts of um, charities. So I crunch numbers out of that. Um, they what else do they give you? Um, they also give you uh, in some of the ones I was looking at serialized player accounts. You actually have wartime voices of players again mediated through ghostwriting to a certain degree uh, of individual players. So I tried where I could to get those in the individual journalistic accounts, whether they're anonymous or named. Um, so so within that there was a lot to there was quite a lot to unpack it's one of those ones that it wasn't a subject where i went in and i really struggled to find material it was actually it was the opposite i went in and wanted to start digging into it uh, it's interesting you mentioned obviously paper rationing even the the sports papers number of them continued some of them do stop because of paper rationing you do physically see the papers get smaller which is really quite cool to physically see that shape and uh, and my particular favorite one the green and Sheffield Green and loses its colour. It becomes a white newspaper due to paper rationing because it comes the um, the dye came from Norway and then due to difficulties with the supply across the North Sea, um, um, they had to cut out the green from the green and about like 1917 or something like that, if I remember correctly. <laughs> so, I mean, it's false advertising, but it's fine. 
(laughs) So being the terrible interviewer that I am, what questions should I have asked you about this book or about this research? What was the the burning great story you had, which I've completely ignored and negated uh, prior to this point? Well, this isn't so much about using an interview, it's about me as a as a as the interview viewer. No, no, no. Um, go, go in with both feet, don't but, worry. But obviously, obviously, in the context, obviously, uh, the England women having wonderfully won the um the Euros in the last few weeks. Obviously, I've not mentioned women's football, so to speak. And yes, uh, yeah. I think one of the things with the book was that I've written a lot about men's football within this, partly because coming into it, actually, there was more writing about women's football on the home front than there really was about men's to a degree. And I thought, I naively when I started it, I thought that like, there's probably been a lot, as lot as can be written to a degree. And then I started getting into it and actually realising, actually there is, you have to really spend a lot of time digging down into finding those individual small accounts and building up this real uh, granular level detail. Uh, and hopefully what I'm trying to do after the book, at some point after this, is I've got data for mapping purposes of most of as many of the teams as I could find. Um, so there's just a huge more eight there's still I've got a chapter in the book about women's football exploring its rise and trying to put in the context of what's happening with men's football because it often gets presented as men's football ends women's football fills the void uh-huh. men's football comes back women's football is shut down uh, and I, I would argue it's much more sort of um, a complex picture and it's really about what's happening at the local and regional level to really understand that the how people experienced at those levels and then using that to then build up that national picture because it was popular in some parts and it wasn't popular in others. It like women's football from what I can see in some areas, there was very little of it and others it's really big and it's really massive. Um, and it's really understanding that that's, that's important. And there's actually sort of still, still so much more that we can do to explore it, especially as we get more, information from families we can link it up with um uh, family records uh, so i've been trying to do a bit more as well on the post-world war period as well uh which is up oh, that period from about 1919 up to 21 which i think is still uh it's still there's still a lot more to be done there and exploring that at the national level understanding what happened in those crucial couple of years um so yeah so it's very exciting times on that particular front and there's a lot of other people obviously like working out there uh, I won't name take anyone in particular right now. It's just because there's, there's a lot of people working on it, which is really, really encouraging. I think like in the next five or six years, that 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 picture of women's football will have advanced so much. I think there'll be some amazing research that's come out. So it's very exciting. And you know, just to follow on from that, in terms of that regional spread, is it like predominantly southern teams? Like, is it a north-south divide? Is it east-west, or is it just like a sort of Jackson Pollock? like smorgasbord of it's a hotbed here but 10 miles down the road i think from what i can see so far is uh patrick brennan did a lot of work around the northeast which i've relied upon the northeast is that kind of big hotbed uh you've got quite a number of teams in the northwest uh around some in london around sort of um, to the east of london uh and then you have some in the midlands Uh, but what you have within that is say for example yorkshire has tiny uh, not has time, has areas of certain activity but not quite as many uh, but that's partly again that's partly like have we got enough resources will more newspapers get digitized um, and then actually understanding there are perhaps gaps and absences which may come down to that's understanding the connection between uh, women's uh, between women's role in the war effort factories what how regional employment patterns are different what kind of different industries that uh, where women are going into 
um, and why that might account for representative like discrepancies. And then also trying to work out how much that comes down to individual uh, choices made by women by different factory environments, whether they're supportive or not. Uh, and then the sort of it's a relatively short time frame back from late autumn 1916 up to 1918. So within that, it's a relatively shortish period for teams to be starting, having that ability to play against other teams, generating a culture before then it disappears through their jobs disappearing uh, and demobilisation. Uh, and then just all the simple things like travel and distance, all those other things that might prohibit a team from playing each other. Because um, you do get some accounts of teams sort of like wanting to play other teams, but not having enough nearby. So it's just because there's a, it's, interesting, it's understanding what is that dynamic between how, what kind of level of uh, strong football culture you have in a particular area and where are those ones where it might be, there are definitely some strong teams, but not as many. Um, so yeah, it's the, and I say that's the sort of the beauty of it, is trying to get into that very, very local, um, local to regional level picture and then building up it's like a mosaic i was reading about this in the context of um, uh, of uh, feminist history recently in terms of women's football is very much some of that it's like building up this mosaic of all these different areas all these different women what they're doing understanding it in those local contexts and then hopefully over time we can build it up into hopefully what should be quite a big complete picture yeah um, yeah uh, related to the building of the mosaic and also the awful question that I think anyone has asked when they've achieved, you know, done a great milestone of publishing a book. Um, what's next? Is the next step then looking more and digging into that sort of granular regional sporting history? Or is there a number of different projects? Or is it taking a well-earned break and remembering <laughs> that, you know, we can breathe deeply at times. We, we don't have to be going the whole time. Uh, what's next? Um, I'm still, yeah, it's sort of... Um... There's various different, there's tons more. I've created, collected a whole load of research that I could take off from, from the period of the book that I could take off in different directions in which I'm probably about a bit having time to think about. Uh, I'm really enjoying sort of taking, researching more of that interwar period, uh, especially some of the women's football and the post-war, uh, immediate post-war period, but also just generally interwar football. I'm sort of um, getting quite interested, sort of developing perhaps some of those ideas and uh, from the book a little bit, but also just completely different stuff, um, just through my work, sort of various different things around, sort of um, trying to think all sorts of, <laughs> yeah, just off, off the top of my head, there's sort of different things. And whether they form a coherent whole or not, I'm not entirely sure. I just find lots of different things at the moment that I'm sort of going off. I'm distracting myself with like referees in Brazil in the 40s or Austrian clubs touring England in the 30s and trying to work out whether there's a way I can make that just not like, um, what's it, not antiquarianism, link it to something make it a bit more bigger and more, more interesting but i mean i i have told people that i'm a research mongrel or a research magpie mm. um so feel free to both the derogatory terms actually if you think about it but feel free to to borrow that i'm like a research magpie it's shiny i'm gonna go over i like i'm about to say that I, I think that that would definitely sum up my uh, the terrible the british newspaper archive is a terrible 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 thing because it allows you to just go and take one or two keywords and then lose two and a half hours of your life playing around and discovering a whole new research topic that you would really really like to start working on like this week but you've still got the other two that you discovered the previous month to keep playing around with or actually read the things that you sort of cropped and pasted uh, out of it yeah i mean you know, who needs free time or other hobbies uh, so is there anything else to say about your wonderful book before we sign off 
just yeah, I suppose if you've uh, enjoyed uh, hearing me talk about it, please do look it up if you'd like to purchase a copy. And um, uh, and yeah, and also be interested if anyone um, if anyone wants to um, uh, provide feedback on it as well. Actually, that would be it'd just be lovely to hear what people have liked or not liked as well. What I've got wrong, I'll be like. Uh, hopefully, never, I'll see a few people at the Yeah. <laughs> Well, Ever. I like to think that's that's the one way to learn from it all. But, but yeah, that would be interesting. Uh, yeah, brilliant. So yeah, that is football's Great War Association football on the English home front, nineteen fourteen to nineteen eighteen. It's available at Pen and Sword Books for twenty five pounds or possibly seventeen pounds, uh, depending on one's frugality. Doctor Alexander Jackson, thank you so much. And yeah, we'll be seeing seeing at the BSSH, um, and listeners will hopefully be seeing at the BSSH at the end of this month. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me on the podcast.